real life superpowers. I think all of us have those labels that are being put on us. And if you don't take that act of defining who you are and knowing who you are and stepping into your bigness, then you will be defined into your smallness. That's just the physics of how things work in the world. Hey guys, as a podcast about peak performance, we get a rare opportunity to speak with some truly remarkable people. And it's not that we don't believe every person is or can be remarkable, but some people stand out, making the impossible possible. And it seems they do so by first and maybe foremost being the best version of themselves and inspiring others to do the same. Such is today's guest. Henry DeCio has shifted the tectonic plates of human history. He's one of the key players that helped get Barack Obama elected in 2008, serving as the chief operating officer of the Obama presidential campaign, and then serving as deputy assistant to the president in the Obama White House for two and a half years. He spent many years with the social organization Ashoka. He's a keynote speaker, campaign strategist, and leadership advisor. He's recently published a book called Changemaker Playbook, The New Physics of Leadership in a World of Explosive Change. He's engaged with the world's leading social and business entrepreneurs, bringing his change-making framework to boardrooms, newsrooms, community forums, university institutions, and governmental halls all over the world. He's helped global leaders cultivate in themselves and in others the qualities of the change-maker as he defines them. An innovative mind, a service heart, an entrepreneurial spirit, and a collaborative outlook. In our conversation, we delve into all of that and more. I hope you check it out and enjoy your listen. Henry, welcome to Real Life Superpowers. Thank you. It's, it's a great pleasure. What are you up to these days? Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, right now, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm, I've been settling my family in Washington, D.C. We've been in Australia for a year, and now we're back here in the United States. So we're just kind of getting reoriented to things. What were you doing there? I've been working with Walk Free, which is an organization that's combating modern slavery. Wow. Have you always been trying to do things that are impactful since you remember yourself? I grew up uh, in, a, in a very rural setting in California uh, at the foothills, sort of at the gateway to Sequoia National Park, where the, big, where the giant redwoods are. Uh, you know, I think that was just, uh, on some level, that was an isolated life. And, uh, you know, we, we had the same 12 kids in my class growing up through school. And I think the thing for me was I was always kind of looking out. Uh, I enjoyed the lakes and the rivers and, the, you know, tennis and ba- basketball and all those things. But Uh, there was always just a world outside of where I was. So I guess I was always wanting to scratch at that a little bit, see what that was like. And, uh, and I guess I've always wanted to make some kind of a scratch in the world that would, you know, that would be lasting, but I'm not sure I knew what that was. And how did your career evolve? Well, so, you know, I think, um, look, when I, again, going back to my very earliest days, I remember, I remember being, I don't know. seven, eight, nine, ten, I can't remember, but I remember, you know, the, this, you, we had three channels on our television set, you know, I'd have to bang it to get it to come in right, black and white, fuzzy and the whole thing. And, uh, and, uh, but there was this one show that came on in the summer, uh, when I was about 12 years old, it was a show, it was my first reality show. I, I call it the Watergate, uh, the Watergate hearings. It was when Nixon was right. on, was on, uh, was, was going through an impeachment process. And I remember just, I was compelled by that. And so I think on some level, uh, I didn't lose my faith in government during that process. I actually think it was important for me to see how it played out. And I felt confident about, about that. And I guess I think that's, how, I, I, I kind of had an, an inkling that that was how I could have it make a difference in the world was through politics. What about it? Like what caught you? First of all, I think it was just, you know, Ron, it was this kind of, far away place with these characters you know we had judge Sirica and you know John Dean and all these kind of characters that were around the president so it was just a story that I could follow that was different from the evening news and then I think as I as I um, as it sort of played itself out I thought well the country can get through a crisis and uh, and then I just thought at that point I became interested in you know Bobby Kennedy and so you know Martin Luther King and that kind of thing and then I just started to find that, Maybe that was where I could grab onto, a place I could grab onto. 
was your whole family following and sort of were you voicing to them that you think maybe you could somehow in the future when you grow up, you know, sort of join the system and fix it? It's interesting. Again, I grew up very small in a very rural town, so I didn't really know other way, other avenues, right? But no, I watched it by myself every day. Um, it wasn't my family was oriented. Like we talked about politics, we talked about the world. It was always a it was always a dinner table conversation for us. Uh, the, you know, there was just four of us. It was my brother, who's a year and a half younger than me, my mom and my dad, and we were very engaged with, you know, what was happening in the world. But when, no, I watched that every day by myself, you know, just at the middle of the day, it was 110 degrees outside. So this was a break in the middle of the day for me. Um, but I found it compelling. And, you know, I also just, uh, I saw that White House, you know, on television every night and the evening news. Again, it was a, such a, Washington, D.C. was such a faraway place back then. But somehow I think I always thought, I never, it wasn't like a goal. It was just like, I think I'm going to be there someday. I don't know how, you know, I didn't think about it any more than that. I wasn't directing my career that way. Um, so I studied politics in college. Uh, I went on to become a labor organizer and I did that for 15 years. But then the thing, the moment was, is uh, I think it's interesting to tie this back was, uh, you know, we started running union members for political office. And I found that I had a knack for that and I liked it. And I liked helping people to learn how to build their own organization to make their own change. And so that was, uh, so it's, it's politics, it's like running for office is like a startup. And so I had a knack for that. I helped them. I think the difference for me than others was where others would say, we'll teach you how to give a speech or how to raise money or whatever that is. I had an approach that I will teach you how to be the CEO of your own organization. And then you can do those things that can help you unseat the other dog catcher you're running against, whatever that is. So I found my passion that way. And then I, 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 um, I took a year off, went to the Kennedy School, 15 years into my career, got, a, got kind of got studied up on, on uh, you know, how to run political campaigns. And then that ultimately is what led to, you know, my, my pathway into the Obama campaign in 2007. And what do you think gave you that visceral belief that you are able to help people do things larger than life? Because it seems like you, it was pretty clear to you. Yeah, you weren't watching cartoons. No, no, I don't know. I wonder if I was or not. Uh, but no, I, I, I think you're right. I think I, um, you know, I write about this in Changemaker Playbook, which is the book that I just, uh, just put out a year ago, about just, a, just less than, uh, just uh, under a year ago. Um, And one of the things I found is that changemakers do have experiences. I like the question you're asking, though, because I think changemakers do have experiences in their youth that help them build that sort of, um, it's not even a confidence muscle, but on some level, it is just that, that sense that you can overcome what you don't know. Yeah. And, and for me, and, and so if I go to the book and say what the principle is, it is, uh, you know, empathy as a child, uh, which is usually modeled by adults. Uh, it is um, learning around your passion in your, uh, in your preteen years, which again, my, my White House, uh, that sort of watching that television show was one of the, was, was a way that I was learning, I think. Uh, getting an idea and putting a team around your idea and your teens and then leaving to learn, you know, throughout your life. And for me, I think one of the, one of those kind of moments where I pushed myself out of my comfort zone was when I ran for school vice president in my junior year. And I didn't know that, I didn't go into that with confidence. In fact, I probably thought I was going to lose. And so, and then I went on the next year to run for president, but those- Wait, did you win? I did, in my junior year. And then I ran for president in my senior year. And those were moments where um, uh, pushing myself out of my comfort zone and then getting the confidence that came with- uh, Uh, putting a team around my own ideas, around my own project, and then and collaborating with other people. It didn't happen because of me. It really happened because I learned early on that, you know, um, you know, dream work is, is tied to teamwork, right? And so those were kinds of, that's kind of how I started, I think, to get that confidence. Another moment was when I pushed myself out of my little town, and I was an exchange student in my junior year that summer, and I went to Sweden for a summer. And that was, again, stepping out of my, where, what I was comfortable with into a place that was very uncomfortable. And so those moments, I think, uh, do shape you as you're, you know, as you're coming into your, into your own moment. 
So like the White House was something that from a very young age you sort of marked as a goal, maybe not like very, you know, accurately, but like felt or, or envisioned. And then did you, did you find yourself sort of paving the way towards it or was it sort of like a moonshot type of thing and you navigated in life and, and yet landed where you sort of envisioned? I remember that, but I didn't have a big plan for that at all. It was one of those kind of moments in life where you just say, this is something just to remember, but it wasn't driving me at all. What's intriguing for you also about the story that you're te- like saying is, is that like, um, it caught your eye, but, but, um, also in your book and also like in your career, um, uh, the thing is, it's, you say it's like a startup, but because the product are people. So it's the hardest startup in the world because there's so like, you know, you, there's so many things and variables and changes because it's people, right? And, and what's amazing is it's the hardest startup. Like it's, it's one of, it's the, it's the hardest startup because it's an X amount of time where the assets themselves have different interests, you know, and they want to grow quickly. There's, you know, endless amount of just problems, right? Because it's also helping people and managing also people, right? And it's, and it's managing, you know, everything on defense where you want to be in offense and you have X amount of time and also for a campaign or whatever else. So what's interesting to me is like, you have to problem solve and adjust and planning is like, you know, you, there's an X amount and it always practically goes up because you're also the position is, You're actually the executor, which is, I wouldn't say even harder, but it's, it's, you have to actually work with all the people. One person is people working for him and you have to manage all these people. And I'm, I'm wondering for that, like, how did you do the demystification for that? Right. So doing it for yourself, I understand in school, but afterwards, like how, you know what I mean? Like you probably optimized. So I'm, I'm wondering like how badly or poorly in the beginning the mistakes themselves and where did it grow on that like that's really interesting for me yeah i love your i love your question i mean uh maybe we'll go maybe we'll hit that moment in the obama campaign just in a second but just just to build on what you, where we've been and what you're saying you know I, i think i learned even in that moment when i ran for my own office right uh, the only time i've ever run for office uh after you know Uh, after high school uh, it was in high school so I've, I've not got personal experience doing what he did uh, on a regular basis but one of the things I found was that if you could harness if you could cha- rather than use people for your interests if you could channel their energies and their aspirations into what you're doing and you can make this a collaborative effort it's far it, it works far better than trying to bring you know bring my agenda to meet uh, uh, other people's Uh, where uh, you know where you have kind of a fixed idea of how you want to get things done and then you try to bring people along uh, with your motivation so I learned that early I learned that as an organizer I was going into towns you know I was going into I grew up in California so going into Texas and towns in Texas and Oklahoma I even did this in London uh, you know I really learned how to respect where people are what they're what they're you know learn about who they are what their aspirations are and then build a team and That helps us to move forward. I think that was helpful to me and ultimately in politics too. I, I, I agree with what you're saying. When you get into the political arena, you know, um, uh, everybody brings their own, you know, their own talents and their own aspirations forward. And uh, so when you're in the business of, um, of building a team of teams versus building an organization that kind of carries out your will, That can be very, very difficult because uh, you really are one just one you know one person can derail the agenda right or whatever you're trying to get done to derail the mission. So uh, I think that's a that's an interesting thing. When we came to what you know I got the call, I didn't know anybody uh, in the Obama campaign. I got the call and I came to Chicago very early. And you know, Ron, and we had you know you, you come into that office for the first time, you open those doors for the first time. And people just kind of spill out onto that, you know, what, whatever it was, the 12th floor of the, of the downtown Chicago high-rise. And, you know, you're filling this building with, you know, first it's a big space 
with a few people and then it gets really overcrowded by the time you're done. But when you come in, you don't know each other's names and you don't, you know, you don't have the signage on the walls. You're tearing the computers out of the boxes. You still don't have the servers up. You know, you've got the, you've got the checks coming in the mail. You don't have the bank accounts open. You don't have that, the cultural norm that normal organizations would have. You don't even have a, an employee handbook. So when you're coming into an environment like that, it really is about the bigger picture of what we're trying to do together. And you've got to be able to harness that and move it forward quickly. Uh, and then you've got to maintain that throughout the life of the organization. But that, I don't think in that, in that way, I don't think a political campaign is any different than anything we're doing in life, which is coming in, tearing down walls, coming together, solving problems, uh, and, and, uh, and pursuing new opportunities together. The timeline, that's the only difference. You're, you're in, like, as a businessman, I'm saying, you're in more stress. Like, I'm, I'm like, is there any my hands when you're saying it? I'm imagining myself, you have, like, X amount of time, and everybody, it's like a race. Go. They have the X amount. So, like, what, what would be the three first, like, action items that you do? Like, you know, if someone would unpack the baskets, maybe three people that you would call that you always, like, what, what would be the first things that are important to have the setup? Well, you know, and I love that because I used to call it the business of winning. And the business of winning is basically, you know, uh, you've got to be able to build an organization that, that can outlast and outplay the other, your opponent. Um, but, and in that context, it is, there are principles of business that apply and there are some things that are very different. But in the, in the context for us, we had no systems in place and you don't have a lot of time to put them in place. So, you know, people are spending money and you don't have that budget yet. <laughs> You know, and th those are the kinds of things that you got to get control of your environment really fast. Uh, you've got to rely on, and in the case of our campaign manager, David Pluff, I think he relied on about, you know, a dozen of us to really kind of get everything into place very quickly and in our own way. And so you're trying to move everybody together, but you know that everybody's going to get there in a different way. Uh, so you got to get the bud. You got to get the systems in place first. How do we hire? What's okay to hire? You know, what's the process for that? What's the process for spending money? What's the process for opening offices? What's the process? You know, all of those things that go with building the life of the campaign. You've got to get those together really, really quickly because even as you're trying to get that in place, you've got uh, you've got the pressures of the the candidate and the campaign bearing on the organization that doesn't even exist. So first thing is systems. And the other one is the is literally the president, so he has a good organization in this, you know, it's big competition. If he can't prove himself the CEO of his own organization, then he's already got a problem. He or she, in this case, it's him. But but so you've got to have the you've got to have so you know uh, uh, run it like a business. He would say, you know, he would say run it, uh, you know, run it like a business. He would say, uh, you know, I like it run. I want it run tight. Uh, so I remember that, uh, that guidance. And then, you, then we've got to get control. The second thing is I'd say we've got to get control of the culture. We've got to be able to say, who is it? You know, who are we? And so we had guidance from the candidate very early. Um, respect everyone. Build it from the bottom up. And the third one that I think um, gets, you know, gets all the play uh, is um, uh, no drama. So you have now the culture, then you have, so when you have, um, when you have built it from the bottom up, that means get the tools down to where they need to be, right? So you have the now, you have the sort of the um, foundation for the everyone a change maker, everyone a leader kind of climate that we started to, that ultimately the personality that we, we, we moved into. Uh, you have then, um, when you say respect everyone, right? That means that we've got to build a collaborative system here. And then no drama really just means, uh, you know, uh, don't check your, check your agenda at the door. Uh, and so that then was the culture. And, and ultimately, uh, Ronan, what I think happened was we started to build, as we made that our culture, we actually started to hire to that culture. So we didn't hire based on expertise. Frankly, Hillary had all the expertise. She hired all the best talent before we really did. And so, uh, so then what you start to see is that we started getting a type of person. And I described that person later as innovative mind, service heart, entrepreneurial spirit, and collaborative outlook. And that really was an offshoot of that, of the, of that guidance that came from Barack Obama. And then later, then what the third thing is, I would just say, is um, the ability to understand the, the, the universe that you're engaging with. And we saw it differently. And I, I don't think we said it this way at the time, but we saw change makers. And so if you see that very same thing, innovative mind, 
service, heart, entrepreneurial spirit, collaborative outlook. That wasn't just what lived in the campaign, but it lived around us. And so how, when you see um, change makers instead of voters, and this is my challenge to anyone, if you're a business leader, if you see, if you see change makers walking through your door and not customers, if you're a teacher and you see change makers coming through your door and not students, how would you build it differently? And I think in our case, uh, that third piece is that we build an organization that could accommodate change makers. Wow, there's so much to unpack here, but I want to rewind back just a little because I'm really curious. You were talking about the call and I'm wondering who called you and what did they say that made you leave whatever it was that you were doing, which is also interesting to know what you were doing and go do that. Oh, yeah. So let's go back to where I was. That's a good that's a good one. So my wife and I were living in uh, Alexandria, Virginia. So uh, we met. Uh, we met while I was working, not while I was a student, but while I was working at Harvard. And then we moved. I Then I started, I went back to Washington, D.C. after working at Harvard to start building back into this political thing. And so I was, so we were um, at the time then, this a couple of years later, we were living in Old Town Alexandria, but I was in a Barnes and Noble uh, a bookstore in uh, San Luis Obispo, California. So I was visiting family on the other side of the country. And my phone, there's an episode of, I don't know if you've seen that, there's an episode in West Wing uh, where they start calling around and they say, hey, have you seen this guy? You got to see this guy. They're all out of politics now. They're all burnt out and done with politics. And you got to see this guy and come back. Well, I had a call like that. It was not <laughs> anyone I, you know, I didn't, again, I wasn't connected. I had kind of an interest in Al Gore and I had a kind of an interest in, uh, in um, uh, John Edwards at the time, I, I didn't, Barack Obama was interesting, but I knew no one in Chicago, I wasn't going that way. My phone ring, just to give you context, you know, we're, we're thought of as the iPhone campaign, but the iPhone had, didn't come out until after we announced. So I have my Motorola flip phone, it's late 2006, my, my pull out that flip phone, I look at it, I don't know the number, so I just kind of put it away and then what turns out was they wanted to, they were starting to look at people in the campaign. I got a, I had a conversation with a guy named Steve Hildebrand, who was the um, deputy campaign manager. I tracked him down in South Dakota. Uh, and, uh, and we talked about it. And he's like, tell me your, you know, tell me what you guys have done. I've been doing stuff now for the national labor. And I said, look, with a cell phone, a computer, uh, and you know, um, and a, you know, a place you know, a place that you can put a desk. You can turn someone's kitchen into you know a, a kitchen in, into a precinct office. You can turn a garage into a canvassing office. And I thought I had done great. I mean, I thought I nailed this interview. This was uh, early January now, and so I'm told that the campaign manager asked Steve about what, uh, what he thought about me. And Steve said, well, he has interesting ideas, which I thought must have been great news for me. <laughs> and uh, so it turns out, though, I think that I had interesting ideas, I can't right. use air quotes, because I didn't hear from the campaign again. And he was on TV um, about five weeks later. So if the, my conversation with Steve was in early January. Barack Obama was on TV, uh, was on, on my television on a Saturday. I think it was a Saturday in February, right around the 10th or 12th, announcing his campaign for president. And I remember saying to my wife, this isn't happening. The train has left the station and we're not on it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then about three days later, my phone started up again. We'd like you to come in and look at some of our talent. I started coming in and doing some evaluation. What I realized was they were looking at me, and, uh, but I didn't know it at the time. And so anyways, uh, the bottom line is, um, uh, by March 1st, I was uh, was in the door, one of the first employees in the campaign. It was just one of those things where, you know, I think, uh, you know, again, moments happen, right? And you just got, you just make the most of those moments. But why did you want it? Oh, I really wanted, I thought, look, I didn't think he could win. No okay. one thought he could win. I mean, you know, I didn't, wasn't like my friends or my enemies. They'd say, what are you doing? Oh, oh by the way, my wife was pregnant with our first son in the very early, early, early stages and had, you know, there, there had, we had lost a pregnancy not long before that. So it was like one of those decisions, right. like, can we do this? And, um, and so we were really, it was a tough decision, but I really felt like this was an important election and he was an important figure. And I felt like we could really make a big impact in the world, even if we lost. 
And so for that reason, uh, we left everything clear, you know, tie up the lease, you know, drop your clients. My wife quit her job. We're going to have in one day in March, I remember unwinding my business, unwinding our lease, moving to a new city, signing a new uh, contract to join the campaign, and then uh, getting a new house. All the, They say that in your life, if you have like one of those things happen, you're like prone to like some kind of terrible, like a, a heart attack or something. Like I did about 10 of those things in one day. And, uh, and, you know, when we got there, there were challenges for my wife. I mean, we were using the emergency room as our medical care because we didn't have a doctor yet. So um, now, fast forward, by the way, uh, our, our son, Dante, was born and turned one, was the only, was the first child, was the only child to be born and turn one in the campaign. So he's got the distinction of being the Obama baby. But there were some serious, uh, we really talked it through. What business do you, did you unwind? Oh, I, I was consulting at the time. So I was doing some of the, I was doing the, the stuff that I was doing with labor right. and different other things. Right. So I had some clients and I was, um, but I was in the political space. I wasn't like, I wasn't deep into it. I wasn't a known figure. So, uh, but I had, you know, I had my, I had my, uh, my stuff going on and, uh, and it was bringing me joy, but uh, this was a life changer for me. See, see, that's, that's amazing to me because this is something that's recurring with you. Like the, um, so this decision making, it's a leadership decision making in your life. Usually the decisions we have millions, you know, thousands of decisions every day, but you, if like because it's those kinds of projects what's amazing for me is you have to make those decisions which is sort of like you know you should be betting in the casino because you're like each time going all in right and then closing a project and opening a project it's like never ending so have you ever said no like how, how do you say like how many no's to make one all in because you can't move every time to illinois and to madagascar and and australia and coming back and you know so like, how do you do the decision making? Yeah, well, I'm lucky that my wife is a change maker. So she's, you know, she's a good partner in this. In this case, what we said was, you know, first of all, I would just say that um, I do realize and I think there's a point you're making. I've never made a bet on myself and lost. I have, uh, the result has sometimes turned out differently than I, than I thought it would when I made that bet, but I've never made a bet on myself and lost. I think that's generally the case with us. I mean, I think when people really take risks with their passions, again, you know, we're going back to this thread that you opened up, Noah, which is that early passion. What are you passionate about? What will you, what will you stand for, right? And so I've never said no, Ronan, to my passion. So gaining, so your ROI would be gaining experience, worst case scenario, so you can't lose. I think that's right. You're going to at least learn a lot. Right. So, uh, but I, you know, I mean, it's, it's a, cha it's a, it, you know, it, it, it is a balancing act for sure. We've been on the knife's edge as a family. Uh, but on the other hand, um, we've always made the, and I think this is just a stylistic issue for some, we've always made the, we've made the decision for adventure in our life. So we always think that, uh, and, but, and, but it's also the change maker playbook. Like for my kids, uh, now, when we go to Tasmania, we're making a decision. Look, I could have gone for three months and been there by myself, or I could bring the family. I want the kids to have that, um, out of their zip code experience. I want them to see the world. So we're constantly looking at ways that we can grow in the way, ways that our kids can go in the in this case, uh, what we said was we'll do it for a year. We'll do it for a year. We'll know by then if he's going to make this or not. And that would have been March of 2008 and that and 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 by march of 2004 we knew that john Kerry was going to be the nominee so i thought okay well no now the problem was is that this race with hillary went all like never been done before certainly not in my lifetime i think went all 50 you know six races with the territories and all and so uh it went into it went into mid-june and so uh, that was a, when we got to March, we had to make that decision. How are we doing here? Now, Dante's been born. He's five months old. I'm trying to balance the demands of a, of a mushrooming campaign. At this stage, the organization is going to grow. Just for context, in the first 16 months, we went from zero to 2,000, from 100 to 2,000 people. And from a $7 million a month to $40 million a month uh, budget, in the last 16 weeks, we would go from, uh, from uh, 2,000 to 6,000 people and from 40 million a month to 100 million. So now I'm in this situation of saying, what are we going to do? Because I always said the pros will come in in March. Like we can step out at that point. 
But we actually just decided, look, we've gotten this far. We might as well go all the way with this. And see, you know. And so, but that was a decision. If Cena would have said, I'm not down for this, my wife, Cena, if she would have said, I'm not down for this, or we need to stop, then we would have stopped. And same thing when we went to the White House. It was like, oh, you know, this is going to, we're tired. We've got babies. Now we had a second on the way. And it's like, oh, can we do this? And we said a year. And actually, uh, it actually stayed two and a half years. But they're always it's always a family decision. Because in politics, you might know this in business too, but in politics for sure, I've seen people make that decision by themselves without, without their spouse coming along or their significant other. And it went badly. Uh, so we've always made sure that we're talking together. And so whether we're going to Australia or whether we're going into the Obama campaign or whatever it is we want to do, it's always for me about where can I make the biggest impact? I'm driven by impact. I love to make impact. I love making big change. That's my probably my addiction. And so uh, it's always then. And then the other thing I do, and this might open up a whole nother thread, is I, I didn't notice this, but I take a sabbatical every seven years, six or seven really? years, for about six to seven months. And that is to just sort of learn, reflect, retool, and get that map out again and say, maybe if my next biggest impact has to be stepping over here and going up this mountain instead of continuing on the climb that I'm on now. But don't you have any FOMO or fear of missing out in that? Like, I'm... I'm I, I'm always intrigued about that because he, 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 here again, we're talking about big changes. Like you can do it because you're used to this big change, you know, and, and you have a great culture at home with your family that, you know, uh, they understand it with each other, but how do you stop? Like this year you get an offer of, of doing something amazing because you're probably like you get so many and why this year you're going to take a sabbatical and you stop strategically and say, no, Yeah, I mean, I look, I don't I didn't notice I did it. It wasn't until the when I left Ashoka, I'd been working for Ashoka for seven years. That was my job after the White House. I was working with the world leading social entrepreneurs. And I don't just stop. I'm compelled. I'm I'm not, I don't I don't um I am I don't I, I am pushed, I am pulled away. I don't push myself out. I'm pulled away. Whether it was the White House or whether it was Ashoka, uh back to my junior year in high school, the first time I took a real sabbatical. Uh, going to Sweden. But the thing was, is that um, what I realized is that um, it goes back to Noah's earliest question, which was, I think I was always driven to make a difference. Uh, I wanted to give myself to, uh, you know, to a better world. I didn't know how to do it. And I still think that I, I want to do that. And I'm always a player in it. I'm not the, I'm, I don't get to be the lead guitarist ever. I'm always kind of the drummer or something in the background. Uh, but I like being able to position myself with people who are making big change and want to do that. And then I think the, and then I think the key is when I take that break, it's not to say, what am I doing next? It's more like, gosh, the last time, I, my last sabbatical, I coached my kids' little league team because I'd been traveling all over the world. I never could do that. So I, I taught a class um, of, uh, at American University, uh, uh, seniors coming into college and, and college, you know, kind of gap year type stuff, gap semester type stuff. And I learned and I just, I found out what sort of fed me and my, you know, my spirit. And then, and then there's just something that comes up. When I left, um, when I left Ashoka, It was because I really wanted to write about these world amazing change makers I'd come in contact with over seven years, the world leading social entrepreneurs. And what I was compelled by was not their big ideas. It was how they made change. And I thought that's what we can all learn. And, and to your point, I think if you stop, that's when, the, that's when you have problems because this is a world that is moving so fast and a world that you don't get to stop anymore. You have the, if you try to stay in one place, in this world where change is the only constant, then, then you're going to lose, you're going you're to fall behind the wave as it goes by, and you're not going to be able to live in harmony with the way the world is going. So we've lived in this world where repetition was the thing, and everybody got their skill, and you apply your skill, and you do it over and over, and you could do your life that way, and live in harmony with the world as it was. Now, if you do that, you're going to live totally out of harmony with the world. You have to be able to think and learn and move with this new shifting strategic landscape. And I think that my orientation uh, was really, that became clear to me as I, it's not something I did consciously. It's something I think I intuited. And I think most of us do. But now, as I see, having worked with the world's leading social entrepreneurs and how they navigate this world of ever, you know, constant change, 
that there is a way to live in harmony. And the problem is our systems were built for repetition and our mindsets were built for repetition. And so moving into this world uh, of dynamic complexity uh, requires a very different way of thinking and working. So I feel much more, frankly, I feel more at ease working this way than I do just sort of um, moving into steady routine. That makes so much sense to me. Um... And it's also sort of in sync with uh, Buddhism uh, and some deeper knowledge because, you know, like in mindfulness, you sort of pause and the whole premise is you're supposed to just observe your own thoughts, like not to stop thinking, but to observe. And through that, sort of be more aware uh, and more centered. And it seems like in your movement in life, you've sort of realized that when you do that uh Periodically, you're able to recalibrate and reassess and, and learn from what you've done you know, during the motion. And it seems like it's really working for you, right? Yeah, but it's scary, though. I'm not going to say it is. You know, and again, um, uh, we, we look for ways to, um, you know, like we're not free spirits here, right? That's not, we're not just kind of flowing with the wind and kind of doing. We're very, we're very conscious about how we make our decisions. But we also know that at the end of the day that, um, you know, uh, our family has to be flexible and nimble. You know, I even talked about with my kids when they were young, I'd say, you, how many revenue streams do I have? Because if I had only one, that was pretty precarious. I wanted them to understand that here's, I do speaking here, I do books here, I do consulting there, and I have a job. And uh, so, you know, I'm always constantly trying to figure out how to accommodate this world of complexity. So it's, it's not easy at all. I think the key is I've gotten to know change makers and as we're living in this world of complexity and as we're trying to build a gener generation that can come into this world of complexity, think about what we've just gone through, what we're going through now with the pandemic, you know, and the narratives that are going around with that. Like I hear things of, well, my kids lost their prom or they lost their little league or they lost the different things. And we talk about what was lost, but we actually also should think about what kids are getting. I mean, I think we're preparing probably the greatest generation right now because you know they've learned to go into homes they've got their teacher on their on their screen and their parents over their shoulder because we're now new teachers we're trying to figure out them and how their lives in the classroom i'm way more engaged with my kids schooling than i ever was before so now they've be, they've learned how to deal with adversity they've learned how to be uh, isolated they've learned how to connect they've learned how to navigate this world of constant change so this I think is going to serve them really really well if we could get our narrative straight around this for our young people and talk about the resilience also I mean I'm very sensitive to the loss and the hardship of people in co in this pandemic so I don't want to sugarcoat that but I do want to also say our kids are resilient and they are learning and they are growing and if we can bring that into their consciousness and bring that into their conversation rather than sort of uh, leave it behind I think we'll serve our kids better if we talk about their resilience and what they've learned as they've gone through this this challenging time it's a little bit about uh, how we frame things also to them I found that in changemaker playbook that was one of the most important we have a whole chapter on um, define thyself lest you be defined I was you know again I'm sensitive to this personally like I was defined as my, by my area code and that was a way for people to say he's small they're just you know like we're they're just rural right. uh, and so it was a way to kind of dismiss me right but I think all of us have those labels that are being put on us and if you don't take that act of defining who you are and knowing who you are and stepping into your bigness then you will be defined into your smallness that's just the physics of how things work in the world did you try to prove to them uh, that you are big or or was it more of stepping into your own greatness or both Well, look, I, again, growing up rural, so in some ways people would say growing up small, that I think this got into my, got into my consciousness. When I was a labor organizer, I remember I would go to a workplace and I would meet people and let's, have, let's talk about, you know, just say your name. And, and I'd hear things like, um, well, I'm Robert and I'm just a parks worker. I'm Lawanda, I'm just a lunchroom worker. I'm just, I found that this kind of idea that we were all made made small right by our labels and some some of those things it really did i think it did kind of um it struck me it was confronting for me and so 
Uh, and the you know, again, if you look at the Obama campaign, one of the things I realized was that after Hillary got out, so I had always had this kind of sensitivity about this. When Hillary left the race, and we were about to face John McCain, who's you know the Republican nominee. And uh, what I found was that was interesting was um, there was like an outbreak of smallness in the campaign. People felt small. We were bringing in all the pros too. And so you're feeling like all these, you know, people you've seen on TV and heard about are suddenly coming into the campaign. And, and so this, uh, and so the, what I realized was that um, people had gotten as small as the details of their work. And, uh, and it was the details of our work that made us big. And so I realized at that moment that I, I, if we were going to succeed, I had to be more than the chief operating officer. I had to be the chief bigness officer. I had to help everyone step into their bigness, see the value of what we what they were doing. Um, we had this group of people who were um, who were uh, in charge of kind of our travel, and so you'd call them, and they'd they you know you'd book travel. We have a system where you'd book it, and then you'd call them, and then they'd say, but they would educate you about some steps you could take. That might um, that might save us some money, but also you could get off the plane back then. Then there wasn't plane, Wi-Fi, so you could get off, make a few calls, get back on, get your, and it would save some money. And you would make the choice, but they would educate you. What they did was every week they gave me a report of of the money that they saved with their leadership interventions, and the money that they saved in 16 months was enough money for us to run the uh, campaign in a, in a small state that we would not have otherwise been able to play in. And so this idea then is that they were called the travel bookers, but really they were responsible for the culture uh, and the mindset and the stewarding of resources and their leadership was saving us a lot of money. But you don't see that in your everyday. So this idea of stepping into your bigness is not like how powerful can I be? If we were going to do the next step and win that election, everyone was gonna have to step into their full bigness, see the big picture, no one passive, everyone has to play fully uh, to be able to get us to the next point. So this idea of stepping into your bigness, and I can't help you step into your bigness if I can't even get myself up into mine. But also stepping on someone else is not stepping into your bigness, right? So there's like, we've got to just be clear about what I mean when I say that. It just means that uh, you've got to realize your full authentic potential. You've got to step into that and you've got to help others do that. And it's back to this early idea of dream work is teamwork, right? So then you can bring everybody together and you can all, you can all flourish and thrive. And, and how can people do that? How can a person listening step into their full potential? Well, I think first, if you go for three steps again, to use Ronan's uh, thing, uh, three things. One, I think you have to, um, you have to first define yourself. You have to know who you are. You have to know, define yourself against the labels that you, you know that you that are being used against you. You have to understand what you're passionate about and step into that passion as well. Take that, take that bet on yourself. Um, and then I think, uh, and I saw this with the change makers I wrote about. They they literally framed their narrative right, and they and they framed the narrative um, in a different way. They always had a framework change or a frame change about what they were doing. What they were, what what people said they were doing versus what they were doing, uh, so there was constantly a, a battle there that was going on. And then uh, I think the other part of it is just being able to tear down walls, uh, because you can't do this if you don't step into your bigness. The ability to tear down walls and bring two or more sides together that wouldn't otherwise connect—that's when innovation happens. That's when impact happens. And we saw this in the, I saw this in the Obama campaign all the time. When we empowered uh, people at the lower and middle rungs of the organization to, to step into their bigness, what we found was, was that they didn't do things the way we did at the top. They didn't have a meeting and then report back and then go back to your silo, tell everybody what to do and report back. They actually worked fluidly across the organization, across those silos. They looked at people's talents. And they, they saw the problem or the opportunity in front of them, and they recruited based on that person's talent, based on that person's possibility, not based on their job title, not based on their, the lane that they'd been put in. And so what we, found were that, what we found was that people could tear down walls and bring others together around a problem opportunity. That was the requisite new leadership skill for this new way of working. And now we're in a world where things are moving fluid and fast and all over the place. You have to be able to tear down walls, bring two, side, two or more sides together around a problem or opportunity, 
that again is when impact and innovation can happen. So I think that, but if you can't do that, and it can be very simple. My wife uh, brought together a whole community that was isolated, shut in. She talked about loneliness, something like 70% of people feel like they experience loneliness. She took the boys to the different doors, knocked on the doors and formed a book group. In, in, in week one, it was a book group. In month nine, it was a flourishing community that had activities. People were coming to each other's events. They were, you know, barbecues, the whole thing. And so we transformed a community based on uh, about 12 women coming together every month uh, around a book. It's like you're leaning by working for everybody that works for you at the same time and empowering them and make them better, which is like a leading and management skill where, where, where I'm wondering if it's like natural. It, was it like a, a talent or is it, was it a skill or a reflex that got better? Boy, I don't know. I, you know, the thing is, what I've found is it's less about empowerment and more about enablement. When I go to a boardroom or I go into a classroom or I go into uh, a town hall, it doesn't matter where I go. And I've done this, actually, this exercise with second graders. I'll just say this. Uh, might have to frame it differently for second graders, but uh, innovative mind, service heart, entrepreneurial spirit, collaborative outlook. How many of you are that? Everyone's hand goes up. Uh, in my second grade class, there was only one hand that didn't go up. And I'm, I think he was probably the most change maker in the group, frankly. But, uh, but everyone, everyone's, that's how we relate. That's how we see ourselves. And the challenge then, so people say, how do I become a change maker? Well, I think we already see ourselves as change makers. The problem is I might not see you as a change maker. You might not see me as a change maker, but we see ourselves as change makers. And so that's the, so, so I don't find that convincing people that they're a change maker is the challenge. I think the real challenge is, the question I usually get is this, I'm everything you said, but when I go to school, I can't be that. Or when I go to the office, I can't be that. When, and so I, I think what we have then is a problem of not empowerment, it is enablement. It is about helping people have, uh, the, have the, the tools and the resources and the system that allows them to be a change maker. And as the world now is moving faster and faster, where problems are outpacing solutions, Uh, and this is what I think we did intuitively right in the Obama campaign. And I think in any organization, I try to really try to stay focused on this. You have to be able to enable everyone to play fully and confidently uh, from where they are in this, in this new environment. And so if you're a business, uh, if you're a CEO, I would suggest that the number one KPI for any business now is how many people of our people are change makers. Same thing for teachers, same things for parents. That's the number one question. How many of our people are change makers? Because we're going to have to be able to tear down walls, come together around problems and opportunities all the time in this world where change is the only constant. The problem is, again, we have systems that were built for repetition. They might have made sense in the world that we are leaving behind, but we've been, as we leave the world of millennia behind of, rep, of, um, of repetition, we're now going into millennia of change making. And the system, you put a, you put a change maker in that old hierarchical rigid system, uh, they can't function. And the right. same way is if you put a non-change maker in an open system, you know, an open fluid system, it's not. So we've got to start to retool now and orient to fluid open teams of teams and preparing people to be able to play in that system because that's where our challenge is. It's not, it's not who's a change maker. It's are we building systems that allow people to be and act as change makers. So if I'm a, like a CEO, I have a thousand workers right now, okay? And I, I want to like, um, you know, check quickly if and differentiate the change makers and non-change maker, or at least understand if we're more change maker-y or not. What would be a good uh, way to notice? Look, I love, you know, one of the things, first of all, I, I think it's, I think it's uh, harder to have this conversation to say, are you a change maker or not? Because I, again, I go, I default to, I see change makers. Having said that, um, one of the challenges I think is that we don't see that the game has changed. And so we don't actually see the necess necessity for change. So let, let me put it, let me sort of zoom out for a minute and give us a, uh, a different example. Uh, football player. He's in the locker room. He's getting ready for the big game, right? He's prepared his whole life for this game. 
it's an American football player. So it's a gladiator sport with the pads and the helmet and the whole thing. And, you know, you're going to slam them into each other. It's what, you know. Uh, and so he goes, he charges out of the locker room, out onto the field. He's get the game he's prepared for his whole life goes out of that tunnel and onto the field and the lights and the dancing and all the excitement, everything he's ever known. He is excited for this moment. And then suddenly you see his pace start to slow. He starts to track toward those players on the field that he's going to join. His pace starts to slow. Something's wrong. The two steel spires on each end of the field are down. And now there's these two nets and the players don't look anything like him. They don't have the big heavy gear. They have flowing hair. They chase after a very different football. This one spins out a black and white pattern low across the ground. And so what's happened? The game has changed. Now he's got three choices. Either he, uh, you know, either he doubles. Well, first he can just stand frozen and doesn't know what to do. And he's going to get pushed to the sidelines. The second thing is he can double down on what he's been prepared for his whole life, which means lowering those shoulder pads and helmet and slamming into those unsuspecting players with the flowing hair and, you know, the loose clothing and tackling them to the ground. And again, he's going to get moved to the sidelines. I think the problem is we have this conversation without talking about how the game, how the world has changed. And so the third thing for our player then is to take off, to see the game, try to learn the game and then understand it. And so that means taking off that big, heavy gear, working new muscles, muscles that you've never worked before, training differently, training your players differently. So, so I know a CEO who uh, looked at his organization and said, we have to help people understand the changing business strategic landscape. We need our players to our staff to be in this game, not passive, which is what we've been kind of taught to be, right? That's our mindset. That's the, that's the way we've been groomed. Uh, and so what he would do is he would, he would, uh, he would find the change maker, let people identify who they think is the change maker. And then they would use that to model how they do different trainings and different kinds of things that they were, uh, you know, that how do you, how do you as a change maker learn differently? What do we need to teach differently to ourselves? What can we learn? And so they basically built a core group that would model uh, what they were trying to, to show. And it's just the same thing with my, my social entrepreneurs. Like that is a group of people who show us how to play this new game because I think it's too hard to sort of like do the things that we know how to do, which is, you know, figure out some kind of uh, pros and cons list. And here's the prescribed training that everyone takes. How do you do it differently? I think it's a very, um, I think we're learning. And so we have to understand the context for the change and then how to model that in a way that we all can come along and not feel like, oh, they're the good ones and we're just not really very change makers. But then you still have a team. Uh, and you're sort of looking around and you're trying to understand, are they a good fit? Are they change makers? Or are you saying at the end of the day, at the core, we're all change makers and it's about the ecosystem and helping, enabling them to be that. Yeah, making the culture, right? Is that what you mean, Noah? Yeah. I think it's very cultural. You know, like, uh, I, I, um, I remember from my Obama days, right? We had a very prescriptive, you know, KPI type organization in the very earliest days when we were trying to get control of the, you know, back in the days of hope and chaos, when we went from hope and chaos to change on steroids, the organization had its systems, but we couldn't keep up with the pace of change. So we had to open it up and let everyone step into their leadership. And now how do you control that? Right. But we had those norms that we talked about, build it from the bottom up, you know, respect everyone, no drama, move everyone along together. And so, um, so what I'm saying is, is that you build, we went from going from that, uh, that sort of reporting kind of culture to a culture where we were curating information. Now I go to a meeting and I'm, and I'm trying to understand from the people around me what they're doing and report that to others so that we can actually move together more in flow versus uh, more in hierarchy, more, in command and, more than in command and control. And so that's more and more, I think what we have to figure out how to do as a society is how do we work together in fluid open systems, not how do we close them down and actually move into, into rigid you know, and try to double down on the old game. Uh, we have to figure out how to play in the new game. And that's going to require a lot. That's not just like something you do at work on day one. I mean, my kids have to learn that when my kids went to school, started school, kindergarten, I remember the fact was out. My kids are now 14 and 12, but I remember when they were five and four. And the, and the fact was that in kindergarten, that we were saying that 65% of job types that they will assume won't exist that uh, don't exist 
right? 65% of the jobs that, that they will assume don't exist in kindergarten. And yet we still had them on the assembly line, the, the game of repetition to everyone of vocation. Yeah. When, when we know that that's not the, that we even could say that the game had changed, but we couldn't change our systems to accommodate that. So now the, the onus is now on me and I'm not against education. My parents are teachers, I'm all for it. All I'm saying is, is that even the most change maker in education have to live in that system right. of repetition. And so my, my job then as a parent was, what are the experiences that our kids need to have uh, so that they can be prepared for everyone a change maker? And those are two, everyone a vocation and everyone a change maker are two very different games. So like what experiences are those? It goes back to that very early framework. Um, and this is very clear. If you look at the stories of the change makers in change maker playbook, and there's some, there, there are people that you'll know, Michelle Obama, there are people that you've never heard of that you'll never forget. But it really comes down to four things. Uh, if I was to give you a framework, learning and mastering empathy before you're seven. And that means I have to be able to model it as an adult. The adults in their, their lives have to really then work on empathy as a conscious thing. The second thing is learning around your passion. And by the way, this sounds so easy, but how many times do we say to our seven-year-old or eight-year-old when they're just starting to get their own kind of ideas, you can't do that. You, you don't want to squash bugs. You're going to be a doctor. You're not going to be an exterminator, right? I mean, those are the kinds of things that we worry about what they're already taking on and what, what uh, don't play that game. You know, even if they're just playing a little card game or whatever, we, or don't kick that ball around, whatever. All of those things, how they learn when they're seven and eight is really important. And we're not paying attention to that. The third thing is in your teens, getting your own idea particularly if it's an idea that benefits other people and putting that, putting a team around that idea and learning how to work collaboratively as co-leaders. I think this is a point too, again, earlier to our conversation, it's not about my leadership. I'm a co-leader. Uh, unless we think about the old paradigm for leadership and then somebody's got to be the leader. Uh, and then the last thing is learning outside of your zip code, outside of your environment, outside of what you're comfortable with. Right, like both literally and figuratively, like you have to also just step out of your comfort zone, but also like really go somewhere else. I think both, you know, I mean, maybe we can't, all can't go across the world, but we can all leave our zip codes. We can all leave our neighborhoods. And there's ways then, I think even as, you know, saw a wonderful program the first time I was in Australia where kids would leave their, would leave their school to go intern in a shop because they wanted to be business leaders. That's definitely like uh, uh, forcing the change is what you talked about in COVID, right? So you force people into the change and you're going to see the ROI soon, even that it looks dark. Now I understand it perfectly from that example. That's a great point. What's your superpower? I don't know. Um, I would like to think the thing I work hardest at is this one thing we talk about, the requisite leadership skill, the ability to tear down walls and bring two or more sides together around a problem or opportunity. But I really loved once somebody described me as a mentor of leaders. And uh, it captured my, uh, my imagination for myself because I do think that um, I want to be sure that everyone around me is stepping into their bigness so that we can play at our fullest potential. And being a mentor of leaders, you know, I think mentorship goes two ways. So it's not a one-way thing. And I also think that uh, it really indicates uh, this idea of co-leadership. And, and that there is an A-leader who's sort of, and there's a bunch of subordinates. I, I learned still today from, like I did, you know, uh, boy, when was the Obama campaign? It's more than a, a, a decade ago. I still learn today the most from the 27-year-olds in my life. So I believe that mentorship, that act of mentoring uh, new leaders is also them mentoring me at the same time. And your kryptonite? Uh, I think systems that are built for the old game and where people are doubling down on, uh, on those systems and uh, when I think we've moved past those. So I, I think, again, I still think the change maker trying to live in that um, rigid hierarchical system, we're not going to see the innovation, we're not going to see the, the um, breakthroughs that need to happen. And so I'm constantly looking at ways to enable people in those environments. And I think I'm a good resource for people who are Who are, I get it's the number one question I get from people who are in those systems or people who are who are leading them and, and want to do something about it. I think that's where the game is right now is how do we shift systems to accommodate our change maker world uh, and do that in a way that is respectful 
of where we come from and what were the environments that we've been living in and the mindsets we've had and not being too impatient. But I believe that um, we now live in a world where we have moved from social responsibility, two words, to social response ability, three words. And we need systems that can accommodate change makers uh, acting on social response ability. Beautiful. And, and this is, it's so insightful. Where can we send people who want to learn more? Well, so, uh, you know, you can come to, uh, you can come to changemakerplaybook.com. Uh, you can come to my website, henrydeceo.com. Um, I'm happy to, you know, share these ideas and, and help people through whatever challenges that they're having, um, you know, moving the game, moving into the new game. Um, I have to thank you for two things. So first of all, you're manufacturing uh, change makers, meaning, uh, you know, just inspiring those people. But well, what I thank you for is doing it in a, a way of optimism and abundance. So um, just um, not, you know, articulating it in a good way and the, the opportunities because there is bad. I appreciate that because we need more of that. So um, thankful for inspiring uh, on that side and thanks for your time. Thank you. Look, I'm very hope and changeful. Thank you. Bye-bye. See ya. Real life. Superpowers.